Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Well, good morning. Uh, and for many of you, welcome back. Uh, this last week was kind of a whirlwind. I mean, we had a lot going on. I'm kind of just curious, um, how many of you, if any, were here with us last Sunday and then went to our congregational meeting on Monday and then showed up to our Thanksgiving outreach on Wednesday and then our Thanksgiving service on Thursday and are right back here for more? You people love church. (laughs) Uh, I hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving Day. It is such a wonderful holiday, isn't it? The entire notion of it, that we are setting aside a day to reflect on the blessings of God, right? To get intentionally into a posture of gratitude. That's a great thing. And this morning, we're going to be uh, continuing on that theme of gratitude because it's really striking that on the same day... We've set aside, designated, to give thanks for God. That very evening, before the rooster crows, we're pulling over one another to get a discount on a television. (laughs) I don't think that there's many other things that can so succinctly capture the human condition than that. We are prone to that. It's like Jonah and the vine, if you remember that story, right? The vine grew up overnight, and Jonah's very great, glad about this. He's got shade from the sun, and then as quickly as it came, it's gone, and then he's bitter and angry and resentful and just wants to die, right? No gratitude. Oh, he became accustomed to the vine. He had expectations of the vine. He deserved the vine, We're prone to that, prone to that kind of complacency. We're just accustomed to the things that we have and and expect the things that we have and deserve the things that we have. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at sustaining gratitude because gratitude needs to be more than just a day. It needs to be more than just a single meditation. Uh, But before we dive into that, let's go before our God in prayer. Father God... Open our hearts and our minds to hear from you. We are grateful for this season to to ponder our blessings and your goodness. And by your spirit, teach us your ways. We want to hear from you. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles if you'd like. We're going to be jumping around a lot, though. It's also going to be up on the screen. And we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy has a nice little summary of the exodus of the Israelites. And I really wanted to focus on that because if you've read through the account of the exodus, there's a word that keeps popping up. It's grumbling. The Israelites are grumblers. They grumble against God. They grumble against Moses. And, And we need to remember what their situation was. They were slaves in Egypt. They were suffering and toiling 
under the Egyptians, and then God comes to them. He reveals himself to them, displays miraculous power, and he liberates them. He frees them from their slavery, from their bondage. And as they're going out of Egypt, they plunder the Egyptians. They take all their good stuff, and they're walking along, and then God delivers them from the Egyptian army. He wipes them out, and then he is bringing them now in through the desert to a promised land that he's prepared in advance for them. And almost immediately, they're grumbling, grumbling against God, grumbling against Moses, going, oh, we should just go back to Egypt. We had it so much better there. What a bunch of ingrates. No gratitude, no thankfulness. Just whining and complaining like a bunch of babies. No gratitude, grumbling just because they don't have water. Is that right? Yeah. That's what they were often grumbling about. Not having water in a desert. Water is kind of important. You know, if you're just going to break down basic human needs, it goes air, water, food. Food being the other thing that they often grumbled about. You know, you can go about 100 hours without water, and probably less if you're under the hot sun and you're exerting yourself, you're walking and carrying things. You know, we can be pretty hard on the Israelites, but recognize that this is not some trivial thing that they're grumbling about. This is life and death. It's not some petty thing. So what's going on here? Uh, Deuteronomy gives us a really interesting perspective on it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. He, being God, humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines his sons, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And this is what Jesus quotes when he's in a desert, and he's hungry, and he's being tempted by Satan. Deuteronomy also says this further on, chapter 29, verse 5. Yet the Lord says... During the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. So that you would know that I am the Lord your God. So that you would know that you don't live on bread alone. God seems to have a different priority list. Jesus says something very similar. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, he says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God knows that you need them. God knew that the Israelites needed water and food, and he provided it to them. He did. 
But God is essentially saying here, yeah, but there's something more important than even that. There's something more important than even food and water. You need to know me. You need to know me. So he cares for them. He does. He gives them their food. He gives them his water. And he leads them to the gates of the promised land. And then this is what it says. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27. You, Israelites, grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. That's what they think. They think God hates them. His chosen people, the people that God set apart and said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God, who, who God revealed himself to them and through miraculous power and liberated them, freed them from their bondage, freed them from their slavery, brought them out of that, took care of them, gave them bread and water and made sure that their clothes didn't wear on, their sandals didn't wear on, brought them to the promised land where they were going to be able to eat from a harvest that they didn't plant and drink from a vine that they didn't toil over and have livestock that they didn't raise, and he's just going to give it all to them. And they think he hates them. Oh, they don't know God. They don't know God. And so God declares to them, you're never going to enter my rest then. You know, if our gratitude is not grounded in knowing God, then all of it really just becomes circumstantial. And it's like, yes, we're grateful that you vanquished the Egyptian army. We sang songs about it, worshipful songs, and we're filled with gratitude until we got to the Amorites. And that just kind of went by the wayside. Listen to what God says in Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 9. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Test me in this. And you see that God wants to bless them here, but more importantly, he wants them to know who he is because somewhere along the line, they got it wrong. In Jeremiah, it says this, Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 17, the, the Israelites are saying this, we will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven and will pour out drink offerings to her just as we and our ancestors, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food. And we're well off and suffered no harm. That is quite a statement. Is that even God's mercy and his patience is being used against them. 
And the fact that he didn't strike them dead the second they started in their idolatrous ways, but was instead merciful to them and impatient with them and gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come to repentance, that's being used against them. Well, see, they don't know God. They don't realize that he's merciful. They don't realize that he's patient. And so they are drawing all the wrong conclusions about their circumstances. And we can do that too. You know, one of the practices that we have, right, is counting our many blessings. Naming them one by one, going through the list there. And we did some of that on on Thursday. It's a good practice. You know, one of the most fascinating uh, prayers of Thanksgiving, I think there is, is what I would categorize as, thank God that things aren't worse. It's a really interesting statement. Thank God that things aren't worse. You know, thank God that the fires are not as bad as they could have been. It's true. But wouldn't it be better if there weren't fires? You know, thank God that the accident was not as bad as it could have been. Sure. But wouldn't it have been better if there never was an accident? Oh, thank God that that my immune system is handling the chemo treatment okay. Yeah. But wouldn't it have been better if you never had cancer? I mean, things can almost always be worse. They can also be better. So what do we really mean by that? What are we driving at there? What's behind that? You know, there's a movie called uh, Fried Green Tomatoes. Uh, and in that movie, there's a character, her name is Ruth. And her son has just been in danger. And so she goes to him, and it turns out he's fine. And so she's praying and thanking God that he's okay. But then she starts to think about her prayer life. And she says, I, I remembered thanking the Lord for every day that my mother lived. Even when she was spitting up blood and begging for me to kill her. And I remembered that having that same reaction after my husband would beat me, I would pray and thank the Lord for giving me the strength to take it. And so she just kind of decides that I'm done with prayer. It's hard to say that you could blame her, but I think she's not getting a clear view of God. And so it's drawing all the wrong conclusions. You know, Christianity is not really about putting a smiley face on a bad situation. That's not really Christian gratitude. It's not some sort of manufactured perspective or some manufactured attitude adjustment. No, it's grounded in reality. And I think that we can even get to a point in our lives where we're just sort of walking around and even very foolishly like trying to protect God. Like we can't admit that any situation's bad because how could God possibly stand up to that kind of scrutiny? And they say, it's not that bad, it's not that bad, it's not that bad. Just turn that frown upside down. It's not bad to be in a desert without water. Yeah, it is. That's a bad situation. In fact, it's dire. See, Christian gratitude is not about being grateful for the desert in and of itself. It's grateful for where it leads us. More importantly, who it is that's leading us. That's our gratitude. It's in Him. It's in knowing Him. 
who has saved us and liberated us from our bondage and our slavery from sin and from death and who is guiding us and taking us by the hand and refining us and molding us and making us holy and bringing us into a promised land. That's our gratitude. It's in him that he's trustworthy and faithful and able and keeps his promises. That's our gratitude. You know, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. That's our gratitude. It's in the reality of that statement. It's not just some sort of you know, fanciful thinking or attitude adjustment. It's in the reality of that. It's in knowing him that he is able to bring us into that promised land because he knows the way. He's walked it before. It's one of the most unique things about Christianity is that we have a God that that knows what this is, not just in some sort of theoretical sense, but not even omniscient sense, but experientially in the person of Jesus. Jesus has been through the deserts. He knows what it is to be hungry, and he knows what it is to be thirsty, and he knows what it is to be weary, and he's experienced a physical pain and suffering that very few of us will ever match. And more than that, he knows the emotional toil of taking on the entire sins of the world and enduring the wrath of Almighty God, which is a kind of suffering that none of us will ever come close to ever. And he did that. So that we would have life and fullness and joy and completion in him forever. Yeah. Sure. But what's he done for me lately? You know the answer? A lot. A lot. And now we start to go through our blessings. Now we start to count them and take some new meaning. We can understand what it really means when we say, oh, yeah, you can't give, I'll give God. Understand where we're coming from when we say, oh, thank God, things aren't worse now. That actually makes sense. It's reflective of a God who is merciful and compassionate, even in the midst of trials and deserts and difficulties. It is a perspective change. It is. But my point on that is, is really this. These are corrective lenses. This is a perspective shift. This is a perspective change. Christianity is about corrective lenses, not rose-colored glasses. There's a difference. It's about seeing reality, not fanciful thinking or positive vibes. It becomes all the more important to see God clearly because too often it's really difficult to see our own circumstances clearly. I mean, we can do our best. We can try to get into the right perspective, doing all the right things. It's going to count my blessings. going to say, yeah, I am really grateful for this. But one of the things that happens is that something starts to worm its way into our heart. And we can go, yes, I, I see that these are good things in my life. I see that these are things that God has given to me. And I'm, I am grateful for it. But there's this one thing. It's one thing I'm lacking. And it's sort of eating away at me and, and robbing me of my gratitude and and my joy, and it really doesn't matter what this one thing is for you. It would be a lot of things, but I think it stems from the same source. And I think Jesus is going to help illuminate that for us. In Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, Jesus tells us a story. 
He says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair, unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Um, if you're like me, you've probably heard this uh, story many, many times. And I've read it uh, many, many times. And I'll be honest, though. It still bothers me. I mean, I can understand it in a, in a higher sort of theological sense when you're talking about salvation or something. But if you're just looking at this story, it's bothersome. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. You know, if I were the boss, I'm going to do it that way. It bothers me. You know, I, I really actually think that's the point. I think it's meant to. Things meant to bother you. Because there's going to be plenty of times in life when you can't ever say that God was unfair to you, that he cheated you. You can't ever say that, that, that God broke his promises to you. But you have plenty of times when you're bothered by God. Because if you were the boss, you wouldn't do it that way. Things would be different. It's not a unique thought. Back to Malachi here. Chapter 3, verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. See, if they were God... Things would be different. Jeremiah complains to God. Jeremiah, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? See, if Jeremiah was God, he wouldn't do it that way. You know, we can't say, we can't say I've been cheated by God. We can't say that, that God has ever broken his promises to us. And yeah, we can look at all the good things that we've been given. We can say like, oh yeah, you've given me my denarius and everything. But there's this one thing, God. We're a loving Christian couple. And we can't seem to have kids. And we look over here and there's just some atheist, teenager, drug addled, and has no problem getting pregnant. 
That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. If I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. I want to be God. I think I could do a better job. It's not a unique thought. It's something that very easily starts to rob us of our gratitude. You know, this, this is a thought that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. You know, they weren't lacking in blessings. But there's this one thing. I want to be like God. If you want to be God, you, you'll never have contentment that way. Because you can't be God. You're a created being. You're, you can't possibly be the Alpha and the Omega. That's not possible. God can't make you God even if he wanted to, which he doesn't. You know, there's a song called Unanswered Prayers. I think it's by Garth Brooks. I'm not going to sing it. But <laughs> the gist of it is that uh, he's, he's pining and praying for this person. And then later on in life, he's reflecting back on that and goes, Oh, man, I'm, I'm glad that didn't work out. I'm glad that God didn't answer that prayer. It's kind of silly and trivial, but I think that there's something there. And a little bit theologically more robust, it's this idea that, oh, thank God for telling me no. Thank God for saying, no, you're not God. Thank God for denying me what I thought that I wanted or thought that I needed. Thank God for not letting me drive because I don't know where I'm going. Thank God for being God. I think all of gratitude stems from being able to say that. Thank God for being God. But that can be the hardest thing in the world to say. And I think we've walked this Christian walk for long enough. We've all experienced that. You know, I can vividly remember moments and situations and times where I'm just angry and bitter and resentful and questioning and, and weeping and praying and saying, God, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem good. If I were God, I would never do it this way. And then we press on. We persevere. We keep following him. And as we get closer and closer to the promised land, and we look back at that, I know it's happened to you, it's happened to me, you go, oh, that, that doesn't look the same anymore. That doesn't feel the same anymore. Thank God for telling me no. Thank God for being God. As we start to feel that sort of restlessness, that desire to be God, and our gratitude starts to ebb away from us, I think we need to remember who it is that's leading us. And recall the words that he spoke to the Israelites when he's leading them out of their desert. I did this so that you would know that I am the Lord your God. Thank God for being God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us in this. Help us find our rest in you. And for those who are weary in the desert right now, who are looking around and saying, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right, Lord. This doesn't seem good. Oh, may your spirit be over them. May you comfort them. 
May we find our peace and rest in knowing you and your character and your nature. Thank you, Father, for being a great and good Father, worthy of our praise and adoration and gratitude. In all this I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.